Hello and welcome back to the Science Behind That podcast. I am your host, Atticus Hamilton. And for all of you new listeners out there, the Science Behind That is a show where we take a deep dive into the obscure science of everyday life, into the science of everything from physics to engineering, and biology to zoology, and psychology to anatomy, we take a deep dive. So without further ado, welcome to today's episode of the Science Behind That podcast. Hello, all of you scientists out there, and welcome back to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Science Behind That podcast. Now, I am your host, Atticus Hamilton, and on today's episode, we are going to be discussing something that... um, I think is really interesting, and it pertains directly to um, medicine. Uh, And so for all of you pre-meds like myself out there, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did making it. Before we start, though, I would just like to say that I am sorry, ladies and gentlemen, for not posting an episode in two and a half weeks. Um, I had, as some of you may know, I am in college, and so the last, you know, or I guess one and a half weeks, the last one and a half weeks I've been having uh, a lot of exams, and I'm finally in a little clear zone, at least until next Friday. Um, So uh, the Monday and Friday episodes are going to resume. And one more thing before uh, we get farther into this episode. I hope all of you will join me on October 31st at 7 a.m. or whenever you get up um, to listen to the very, very special Halloween episode of the science behind that. I'm really excited for that one. Um, So far, it's been a lot of fun making it, and um, I'm really excited uh, for you guys to hear that one. Word of warning, too, uh, and, and I'll remind you later on in the week, but a war- word of warning as well, that one will be a graphic episode, and uh, I haven't had one of those yet on my, on my, in my podcast, but this one will be about, the one on Halloween will be about the three, some of the three most gruesome yet important medical experiments in human history, so I hope you're excited for that. I know I am. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us for Season 1, Episode 7 of The Science Behind That. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about something that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it affects a lot of people, especially when they first come up to high elevation, and that is altitude sickness. So personally, except for the large, I guess, eight years of my life that I spent in Alaska. I was born at high elevation, and I lived at high elevation before Alaska, and now I'm living back at high elevation again, so I can't honestly remember the last time I was affected with altitude sickness, but a couple weeks ago, I went on a hike up a 14,000-foot peak with a, with a big group of people, and there was some guy there from Louisiana, and I felt so bad for him. He was, he was huffing and puffing a lot more than everyone else was, and he was getting really nauseous, 
And that is what today's altitude, uh, today's episode is going to be about. Altitude sickness, <clears throat> why we get it, why we experience it, what is going on at a biological or at an anatomical level, and of course, at a biochemical level, why we build up tolerance. So let's, let us first just start with what is altitude sickness and I know pretty much everyone already knows the answer so altitude sickness it's often called mountain sickness where I'm from but it's a term to describe a condition that results in people who have not experienced high elevation before that either hike up a mountain or immediately go from low elevation to high elevation either you know, in a, in a heli skiing or driving. And um, <clears throat> there are three different types of um, mountain sickness. There's mild mountain sickness, moderate mountain sickness, <clears throat> and of course, severe mountain sickness. And then of course, Severe mountain sickness can be broken down into two more subtypes. One is called HAPE, or high altitude pulmonary edema, and the other one is called HACE, or high altitude cerebral edema. And those are both resulting symptoms in severe AMS, or um, uh, acute mountain sickness. So, what is actually going on? Well, first off, high altitude is classified as 8,000 to 12,000 feet, so kind of where I live. I'm just slightly below that. Very high altitude is 12,000 to 18,000 feet. That's where all of our ski resorts are. And extremely high altitude is like Everest or Denali in Alaska, 18,000 plus feet. <coughs> And so, basically, for mild acute mountain sickness, you'll experience a headache, fatigue, um, you know, um, excessive breathing, but generally, those symptoms don't interfere with whatever activity you may be doing. Now, with the moderate form, the symptoms are obviously more severe, um, along with the mild headache, it would be a severe headache. Uh, nausea and vomiting are very common. And then severe is short of breath, even at rest, um, the requirement to immediately descend, and of course, either pulmonary edema or cerebral edema in very severe cases. And um, for those of you who don't know, edema is just the leaking of fluid into a specific bodily compartment. So pulmonary edema is when fluid is leaking into the lungs, and cerebral edema is when it's leaking into the brain. <clears throat> so, now that we have a nice in-depth understanding of what altitude sickness is, let's discuss what causes it. So at sea level, um, your body is used to um, the sea level atmosphere 
and the sea level oxygen saturation. So at sea level, most often we see patients with around a 99% blood oxygen saturation. But the second you go between 12,000 and 15,000 feet, it can drop as low as 90%. Um, and so basically, altitude sickness is the result of your body trying to cope to the lower oxygen concentration in the atmosphere and the lower um, partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere along with the lower air pressure. And when our bodies are stressed, we release various stress hormones. One of those stress hormones is called cortisol. And cortisol is a very common stress hormone. So there are a myriad of different hormones and um, chemicals that our body secretes to induce gastric irritation or emesis, as we say in the medical world, or vomiting. And so a lot of those compounds can be the results of uh, stress. And um, just like with anything within the endocrine system, cortisol will have a range of effects and it's really easy for the brain to release one stress hormone that will then result in the release of another hormone or gastric irritation. And that's often what happens with altitude sickness. So basically, your body tries to cope to the rapid change in air pressure. And um, oftentimes, uh, it doesn't really matter how athletic or, or, or fit you are. Um, the, if, if you've never experienced high elevation before, the lack of, or the lower oxygen levels and the lower air pressure will be a shock to anyone. So that is basically what causes altitude sickness. And so the, we, you know, we, we could talk about the, the pathology of altitude sickness for hours upon hours, but uh, apparently it's, 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 harder than I thought to find specific pathological explanations of why we feel the way we do. But basically it just simmers down to um, altitude sickness is our cells trying to cope with lower oxygen in the atmosphere and lower atmospheric pressure. And so I guess that leads us into our, our, our last talking point for, for the morning, which is, well, Atticus, if that's true, why is it that my friend Timmy from, I don't know, Montana can, you know, climb a 14,000 foot mountain or an 18,000 foot mountain without feeling the slightest hint of a headache and, you know, I can't climb a 6,000 foot mountain. 
And, you know, that's a very interesting question, and it gets down to two things, and we're going to be discussing one of those things today, and that is the main thing, which it gets down to a chemical called BPG, or 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate. Now, what is 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate, you may ask? 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate is a molecule that binds to deoxygenated hemoglobin. And so, really quickly, we all know what hemoglobin is. Hemoglobin is the protein that gives blood its red color, and it is also the protein that um, transports oxygen throughout our body. There are two different types of hemoglobin, and we you I, I literally just took an exam on this so the, I, I could talk about this for hours but i'm not going to i promise i'm going to keep it short and sweet but there are two types of hemoglobin there is deoxygenated hemoglobin called tense hemoglobin or t state and there's oxygenated hemoglobin or relaxed hemoglobin called r state now why is deoxygenated called T state and oxygenated called R state? It gets down into it gets down to biochemistry. Which, if you guys want to actually hear an in-depth episode, you know where we could go on for like 30 minutes about, please let me know. You can email me that, and I would love to do that. Rundown is it's because of charges on the molecule. A really simple rundown. Anyway, BPG only binds to the tense state of hemoglobin or the deoxygenated state. And for the rest of this, I'm just going to refer to hemoglobin without oxygen as T and hemoglobin with oxygen as R, okay? So BPG can only bind to T. It cannot bind to R. And again, that gets down to charges on the molecule. And so what does that mean? Well, 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate, when it is, it, we all have it in our blood because it is important. It's a, it's a natural product of glycolysis, right? But when you have high concentrations of it, the higher concentrations you have of it, the more shift you see from the R state or the oxygenated hemoglobin to the deoxygenated hemoglobin or the T state. So that boils down to if there's more BPG in your blood, then there's more deoxygenated hemoglobin. There's more T state. And so here's where things get interesting. In people who have a high tolerancy of uh, or to altitude, we see that they have around eight millimoles of um, a concentration of eight millimoles of, of BPG within their blood. And I believe it's eight millimoles per liter. I'm not certain on that. If I'm wrong, chemistry people, feel free to correct me. Um, but they have around eight. And normal people, people who would get altitude sickness have around five millimoles concentration of BPG. So the natural progression of this then is the question, well, 
given that Atticus, why would having a compound in your blood that induces more deoxygenated hemoglobin help with a sickness that is as a result of lower oxygen? And that is a very good question. The answer to that question is as follows. When you have a patient and they have a high amount of BPG in their blood and consequently a high amount of T-state hemoglobin, what happens is the body wants to account for that, okay? The, the body wants to account for that. And um, it, it's, kind, it's almost like the opponent process theory of addiction, which I might get into on Monday. But the body wants to compensate for that. So as a result, when you have more deoxygenated hemoglobin, your body will begin to release more oxygen. <laughs> and then everything will shift back to oxygenated hemoglobin. And that's why. So people who can climb Everest and don't feel nauseous, or people who live at 18,000 feet or 15,000 feet or whatnot, the reason they don't get sick is because they have higher BPG and their body is constantly shifting between oxygenated and deoxygenated. And consequently, their cells do not react the same way to lower oxygen levels that are, are the cells of individuals who do not have that altitude tolerance do. And that is it. That is why. So the next time for all of you mountain people out there, you go on a hike with your friend from Louisiana and he's huffing and puffing, all you have to do is say, hey, I've got more BPG than you. Huh? And then run to the top. I'm just kidding. That's kind of mean. Don't do that. I don't know. Or do. I would do that. I think it's funny. Anyway, <laughs> If you like today's episode, please let me know. And if you have any suggestions for a next episode, or if you want to hear more about the biochemistry of 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate, or anything for that matter, send me an email at thesciencebt at gmail.com. So thank you guys for listening to this extra long episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a good Monday or a good Friday morning, everybody, and whatever you do on Friday morning, and I will see you all later. Remember, stand up and question everything.